0: Welcome back, everybody, to another episode of It Is What It Is podcast. I am your host, Cody Kelly. Uh, I have some interesting topics to cover. Definitely excited about this one and excited about the next couple of episodes. Um, First, I want to cover just kind of shifting focus away from COVID-19. But Biden's Supreme Court promise. Uh, I want to go into just basically... From a political standpoint, what things are currently happening and how uh, that presidential race 2020 is shaping up. also want to drop, uh, really cover just kind of the business effect uh, from COVID-19. Uh, Going to be short, sweet today, but look forward to engaging with you with, with It Is What It Is podcast. So Mighty Joe, uh, Vice President Joe Biden, former Vice President Joe Biden, Uh, According to Sahil Kapoor, has promised that if elected president, he'd put the first black woman on the Supreme Court. To make good on that pledge, he has to look at some atypical places. Uh, Supreme Court justices are usually evaluated from Federal Appeals Court. Eleven of the last 12 confirmed justices were plucked from an appellate court. The exception was Alina Kagan, who was the U.S. Solicitor General. A position so embedded with the institution, it has been nicknamed the 10th justice. Only five black women now are on the U.S. appeals court, and all of them will be 68 68 years of age or older. According to data compiled by the NBC News, Federal Judicial Center Biden would face pressure to pick someone younger who could secure uh, the seat for a generation or more. None of the last seven confirmed justices were older than 55 when nominated. Biden also pledges to shine a light on the stakes in the 2020 election for the high court, where conservatives hold a 5-4 to four advantage. The future of Justices Ruth Bader Ginsburg, 87, and Stephen Breyer, 81, both Democratic appointees, loom large over the future of big issues such as abortion rights and civil rights. The next oldest Justices are GOP-picked Clarence Thomas, now 71, and Samuel Alito, 70. Uh, so, Some of my thoughts, uh, obviously, this is a strategic move uh, by Joe Biden, understanding that, A, the Supreme Court has to get younger, Uh, it has to rebalance or create a harmonious balance between uh, the conservatives and liberals uh, that are on the bench currently right now, and that the possibility of losing, you know, a a Supreme Court justice uh, like Ruth not singling her out or anybody but just any of them you know is a very real possibility because uh life is just life uh so to appoint someone uh to basically represent America for generations to come would be a person of color and a woman of color so really uh, focusing on those two demographics um uh, very strategic move understand uh why uh Biden is going uh this route uh, definitely um, gives my I give him the thumbs up on this. Um, I don't really have any negative or negativity to uh, spread on this because every Supreme Court justice appointee or appointment is a political move. It is not a random put you know names in a hat and you know we just pick you know we pick out one that'll fit. It is to further align the initiatives of the executive office for years to come, even past the presidency, is to make sure that um, certain cultural aspects and policies are implemented and executed. Uh, So this is right up anybody's alley. It's like even the, to me, appointment. <laughs> I always say the appointment of Thomas, of uh, Clarence Thomas is, is an indictment against Thurgood Marshall, you know, so they wanted to replace an African-American male with an African-American male, uh, but didn't want the progressiveness of Clarence Thomas. So you appointed the exact opposite. And I mean, they're not, yeah, the exact, the aggressiveness, not the aggressiveness, but progressiveness of Thurgood Marshall. So you appointed uh basically on the opposite side, Clarence Thomas. So, you know, it, every, political appointment serves a political point. Uh, Whether you call it justice, whether you call it strategy, or whether you call it diversity, it is for a political aim and a political initiative that we hope in turn uh, provides good ROI, right? So definitely understand this, definitely understand the necessity uh, for this move. Uh, This is definitely going to be a game changer, So I want to take a shift and really look at the business impact uh, from the great disruptor known as COVID-19. Businesses like Clorox have seen spikes in business. It's, It's crazy. There is a duality of effect that is going, and both things are true. Every industry has been hit. Most have been negatively impacted in a way that furloughs, layoffs, loss of revenue has increased. Um, there are certain or some industries like the food, like your Walmart, your Amazon that has seen a spike in business. And like Clorox being the face or the brand that is universally recognized as a disinfectant, the numbers are staggering, right? So Blaine Alexander and Tim Stale goes to write that one of America's most well-known manufacturers of cleaning uh, products, Clorox, you know, produced 40 million more items in the first quarter of 2020, than it did in the same time last year, its disinfectives have seen a 500 percent increase in demand since March, and in some cases, it is sold as much in one week as it usually does in one month. This is a no-brainer, right? It's just it's the nature of the times. People want sterility, uh, disinfected, clean. You know, the non-transfer of microorganisms uh, right now is really the focus. Uh, so obviously Clorox is going to be the favorite. Uh, but there are other businesses uh, that are not only struggling to survive, are forced to make an executive decision be, uh, between complying to national or or what I mean, national, federal or state regulations ...or operating their business to ensure future survival. Uh, Read across a couple articles. Uh, One was a uh, business, I believe it was in Kentucky. um, And they operated a spa, usually the spa restaurant. uh, And basically because the ordinances, you had to practice social distancing, they weren't allowed to open yet was negatively impacted their business so that the possibility to regain from these losses just was not there. The business owner decides to open up anyway because the business owner stated it's a matter of survival. When you look at it that way, and I've said this, it's going to come to a melting pot because eventually life is going to have to resume and life even though there is this epidemic, there is this uh, deadly, deadly disease that has impacted so many and will impact so many. But to create a long standing shutdown without undergirding citizens and businesses to the point that they're not responsible for any loss long term, right? That you can basically roll them for the next five years, uh, it's going to create, I won't say panic, but it's going to force people to make a decision. So like, if I, if I own a gym, you know, uh, Cody's gym, right. And I haven't had any revenue for the last two to three months. Now, because I believe in customer service, I'm not charging my constituents because they could can cancel their accounts. So every account is either on pause or it's canceled. Uh, even if I had the favor to work out, if I'm leasing the facility to work out with the land uh, owner, the tenant owner, so therefore I'm not responsible for any payments, even if I did have access to PPP, the Personal Paycheck Protection, uh, which you know guarantees I don't have to do any further layoffs. But the problem with... Zero is that there's this false narrative that when things do get back to normal, it'll be just like old times. Anybody that understands that once you take the, the train off the track, you just can't put it back on. It doesn't work like that, right? So what's going to end up happening is that when things do return to quote unquote normal or back to normal, uh, two things, there will be skepticism and excitement and that roller coaster ride is going to affect how how customers engage uh, commerce so cody's gym even if it reopens first day first week might have a splash but if the fear is corrected the scientists that are putting out and talking about this second wave of corona you know maybe it doesn't or maybe people who have gone you know and basically say, well, I haven't used it in two, three months anyway, I don't need it now. You see what I'm saying? You've taken too much away. You you can't just assume that everything's gonna get back and all is well, because there has to be time, there has to be a time to have adoption. They talk about adoption rates. Anytime something is newly entered into the market, there's a period uh, that before high level of adoption of 75% of the users are feasibly using. So if you have a market, Uh, you have what is called early adopters, right? The early adopters are your usually more daring, boating, boater, can afford uh, more, you know, adapt to this certain technology offering or whatever, but that only covers five to 10% of people. That's your early adopters. Most people fall in the middle that when it's usually generally accepted as the route to take, that's when people go. So even if it opened up uh, February or not February, May 8th, Only your early adopters would really gravitate towards it. That middle section where probably the bulk of your income is coming from is going to be at least another 30 days out. And then that last drag off, you know, which you had to call, had to do free tours and all this stuff and really had to um, hand, I won't say hand walk, but for lack of a better word, really had to lure the sale in. That is going to basically take another 30 to 60 days. So you're talking about in best case scenario, not returning to full operational efficiency and where the numbers were. And this is best case scenario for three months, three to six months really after opening. So we're already going into the six months. So basically 2020 is a wash, you know? So when you start looking at it financially, you say, well, 2020 is a wash. Then what is the steps? The steps is really prepared for 2021. Here's the other part. You, if you have laid off employees, it's like breaking up with somebody, even if you offer them their job back, that trust is gone. They could love you, they could love their environment, but to think that you're going to uh, bring back a hundred percent of the ones that you furloughed or laid off is just irrational, right? And if the average cost to hire is around forty two forty one hundred dollars plus what you spend on talent acquisition to actually attain. Or or promote and market for talent, you have literally just driven up your cost to acquire, while also decreasing your operational efficiency. So the number is actually going up up because it's per FTE. That means more money is spent uh, on operational costs, NFT, and there's less profit, right? Uh, so you've created really a bad situation. So it 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 as cool as it sounds to reopen. There has to be a plan of reopening to reopen. There has to be a system in place that can make sure that businesses and communities are intact, that they are undergirded so that there is safe transition. Because transition is rough, uh, you know, so you have that going. And then I will say the third part is I think what it will create, and this is just speculation, is what I call total meltdown. And total meltdown, I'm not talking about chaos. I'm talking about the possibility of never engaging certain things again. Uh, Because based on how it has impacted you, there's going to be a serious look and organizations are doing it now and people are going to really start doing it. What is needed versus what is not needed. So anything that is considered luxury, if you're one of those who really can't afford and you're not in that, you know, income level or, or accessibility where, you know, you could just spend to spend and not think twice about it, you have to uh, consider the alternative, right? You have to uh, basically, I I would say, uh, look at everything and and like, let's, for example, let's take uh, Hulu, you know, now, yes, Hulu is offering a four ninety nine. So, some might argue that is a necessity. But Hulu Live, like, will will it be absolutely essential? You know, this understanding of what essential is. Can we live without it? Right. So, uh, the the fifty dollars gym membership. Can we live without it? Maybe Planet Fitness becomes more uh, marketable because it's so cheap. It's it's at ten dollars a month. You know, can you justify having the same prices when there's been so much disruption? Can you justify charging the same amount for rent when there's been so much disruption? Are you willing to risk the greater for this little slice of the pie that wasn't really impacted? And when it comes to the absolute necessity of things, that's where you're going to see this rift between consumer and company. Because now all of a sudden... 60 inch TV, you know, Black Friday, that doesn't mean anything. I got a phone. If I want to watch it, I can watch it on my phone. I can YouTube it, you know? So there's going to be this, and this is what i am talking about the meltdown, which is a breakaway from things so that stability can truly not just take place, but sustain. Hey, this has been another great episode. I enjoyed uh, just discussing these topics with you for It Is What It Is podcast. Uh, connect with me on IG, CVMK33. i love to hear from you. i love to discuss just uh, upcoming content. But until then, take care. Be well.